my favorite sayings is by a Buddhist nun called Aya Kema. She was an early Buddhist feminist who started a lot of monasteries for nuns and uh, she used to say that one should practice as if one had nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no one to become. Now the first two sound very common sense. We all know what it's like to feel like we have nowhere to go and nothing to do. It's that feeling you get when perhaps you're on vacation or you're on the beach or you you reach a, you know, a weekend after a lot of work. That feeling of where all the sense of obligations and required busyness in life we can put aside and just relax into the moment. And there's that great feeling of relief. But the sense of no one to become, what does that mean? One of my favorite teachings by the Buddha is called the Loka, which means world, or reflections on the world teaching. And the Buddha simply said, uh, essentially, the world is on fire. And what is it aflame with? Nothing but people who are burning up with self-centeredness. He said, when we fixate on self, what happens is we become delighted with the idea of becoming. And when we delight with the idea of becoming, when we fixate on becoming, we suffer more in life. We experience more stress. So what in the world does becoming mean? What is this all about? Well, becoming is simply a very awkward translation for what is the word bawa in Pali. And bawa simply can be understood in today's lingo simply with the idea of self-improvement or accomplishment schemes. The idea that I've got to accomplish, better myself, get all this stuff done to be worthy of happiness and peace. Now, I need to say that there's nothing wrong with achieving things in life. Keep up with your great American novel, your Whitney Ready works of art, your uh, the the plays, the movies, or the the desires to uh, learn new skills, to to develop new tools in your life. There's a purpose for self-improvement. But self-improvement often doesn't meet the underlying drives or the real needs that we assign to it when we undergo our self-improvement regimes. I'll, make, I'll try to explain this a little bit more elegantly so that it's understandable. But let's start out with one very basic observation, which is in life, as the Buddha noted, there are lots of universal, inevitable, disappointing events that happen to every single human being. We will all not only grow old and experience illness, but we will also, and eventually death, but we also become separated from people that we like and we'll wind up stuck at times with people we don't like that much. 
will wind up going through frustrations and setbacks. So there's going to be all kinds of difficult experiences in our life. Now all of us, even if we grew up with the worst caretakers imaginable, and many of us tend to believe that we do, but we all start out life as infants and throughout childhood getting a lot of our needs met magically by caretakers. So we start out life with the belief that our, we should be immune to hardship and separation and loss. The child is protected from a lot of the really, uh, for a while, the negative experiences. And as we acquire narrative capabilities in the left hemisphere of the brain, specifically Broca and Wernicke's region of the brain, and we start narrating our life, we also start to notice more and more difficulties and challenges in our life. We start to go to school, we integrate with other children, things don't go as well. We start to realize at times that we don't fit in, that there are awkward exchanges, and as we grow older and also narrate our experience, we encounter more frustrations. And so children begin to make the inevitable conclusion that the difficulties and hardships that happen in life are something about them. They're about me. I've done something wrong. I read a fascinating study about of children whose parents die and divorce and all that, and one constant is the theme that children tend to narrate blame for themselves, be believe that somehow they were responsible for a lot of the difficulties and relational breakdowns and family structures that become... Um, so children begin to assign the culpability or the fault or the sense that I've done something that's brought this on to themselves. And they also believe that there's this rescue fantasy where if we can just find the right way to live, the right way to be, that this will never happen, that somehow I can live immune to these losses or deprivations ever happening again. This is why the Buddha, when he came up with the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is, in life, really bad stuff happens to everybody. He was trying to get through this individual sense that I've done something wrong, that I'm being picked on, that there's something wrong about me, or there's something that I uh, brought about, or my life has been harder, or my uh, I, there's something missing that I wasn't given that I need to attain to be secure and happy. So, in fact, in the second noble truth, the Buddha said that this search for a magic bullet that will protect us from these inevitable sufferings, disappointments, losses, aging, setbacks, whatever, that it's the search for a way out that causes a lot of our unnecessary suffering. That if rather 
if we turn to face and hold and, and be with the pain, the difficulty, rather than trying to find a way to live entirely without it, we would have so much more joy and peace in our life. What happens is we develop this equation with achievement, getting recognition, or self-improvement will somehow be the ticket that gives us immunity from pain, from loss, and that it will also, more importantly, it will provide us with what we really seek the most, which is happiness, security, and fulfillment. Now, the good news is if you achieve a great deal in your life, you write a lot of novels, you come up with a cure for cancer, you, uh, you work in a uh, orphanage, I don't know, you do all kinds of wonderful things, it will meet some very real needs for self-esteem and fulfillment. It will create meaning in your life. Meaning is very important. Meaning is the bread and butter of your left, I don't know why I need a point, so when I say left hemisphere, I just habitually do that as if you can't locate it in your own <laughs> thing, but uh, you, the part, half of our cognitive experience thrives on seeking meaning. We want to know what the meaning is. We want to be able to say to other people what the meaning of life is. We want to be able to point to it. This is what the meaning of my life is. This is why I'm here. And that's fine. It's important to feel fulfilled and have meaning. And every study from the positive psychologists of Sandra Leobimorsky and Barbara Fredrickson to the World Happiness Report says that half of the things that we're looking for uh, come about through feeling that our endeavors our actions, our achievements better the lives for ourselves and others. So you write a great play or you, uh, you do work that is useful and helpful to both yourself and others. You build up a sense of agency in the world and viability and you will get the need for meaning in your life. But you will not necessarily get happiness. And it turns out that a lot of people, in my experience, because I've been working one-on-one -on -one with hundreds of people now for over a decade, and a lot of people set about uh, our self-improvement endeavors. Possibly some of us even came here tonight and learned, wanted to meditate and wanted to get in on the Buddhism tip with the idea that, you know, if I do something, if I add some bit of wisdom, if I get a degree in Buddhism or meditation, if I can acquire one more bit of, of uh, knowledge or add something to my resume or accomplish something more, then I get the happiness stuff. And the problem is, is that the drive to attain happiness and the the drive to attain a feeling of security through acquiring or accumulating or amassing or getting somewhere, it doesn't work. 
The right hemisphere is responsible for happiness and positive emotions, and the right hemisphere exists outside of past, present, or future. It's based on felt emotions right here and right now. You can't acquire something that will make your emotional mind satiated. You can only attend to the woundings and the needs right here and right now of the emotional mind if you want to feel happy. The drive, for instance, let me be specific. A lot of people love the beach. The beach is a nice place, right? No agreement. I'm going to work as The beach is okay. So why, why do we love the beach? Well, you go to the beach, there's a nice horizon, there's the sound of the waves, the texture of the sand, the sun. Uh, but really, what really happens when we get to the beach is that we give ourselves permission to relax. When we're at the beach, we give ourselves permission not to think about our jobs, not to speculate about the future, not to try to accomplish anything, not to prove ourselves, not to address all the unresolved issues in our life, not to uh, do anything. We, as Ayakema said, we don't do anything, we don't go anywhere, we don't try to become anyone different than what we are. Here's the thing. We like to believe that it's the beach that's causing that state of ease and peace. But guess what? You could do that anyway. You don't need to be at a beach to stop thinking about the future, to stop worrying about the unresolved issues in your life, to relax into the present sensations and to not try to become anyone other than what you are at that moment. The things that we seek at the beach are available to us every moment in our life, if we choose. But we assign the causality of happiness, we assign it to the externals, the beach. We say, oh, it's the beach where I'm happy. We make it a, a place that's not where we are all the time. It's that place over there, Fort Tilden, or in Montauk, or in Martha's Vineyard. That's where my happiness is. It's not here right now on Tuesday evening in the city when it's muggy, when I'm tired after a long day. It's not available to me now. I have to somehow do something. I've got to make a lot of money. I've got to, uh, you know, get a beach house. I've got to get uh, a partner. I've got to get a car to drive to the place. So we make happiness over there, and it's not over there. Now, yes, the, the meaning of life, the fulfillment part, that's the left hemisphere's bread and butter, that can be in the future. That's something that we need to attain, acquire, we need to develop in life. Nobody is born, as Sartre said, with a purpose or a meaning. You've got to develop, each of us have to develop that for ourselves. But happiness is not something that you need to acquire or attain. 
It's something that we address right here and now by opening to our emotional experience, turning towards it and loving it and nurturing it and accepting it and holding it and not trying to be anyone different, not trying to accomplish anything, not trying to achieve anything. It's a little bit interesting, right? Part of us needs to get things done to prove our our merit, to prove that we have a role in the world. But another big part of us needs to really open up entirely to our experience as it is right now without changing a thing, without the felt need that there's something missing. The more, in fact, we say that my happiness is in the future, the more we make this present moment something that just has to be endured, something we need to get through. i got to get through this time so that I can get to Friday when I can relax, or my trip to India where I can relax, or the yoga retreat where I get to be peaceful. It's over there. The moment we say that, the absolute moment where we say it's in the future, we're saying right now is unacceptable. Is some place where I've got to just put up with. And what a tragedy that is. A lot of Buddhists teach that the urge to become also the urge to self-improve is driven by this fear of change. We don't like the idea that we go through changing feelings, changing moods. We want to get somewhere, we want to accomplish something with the belief that when we accomplish something in our life, when we, you know, we get the degree, we get the better apartment, we get rid of that roommate, we get nicer furniture, we, uh, we, we finally quit working for that horrible job and we work for, you know, at home on our blog, that that will be the time when, when change stops happening, when we just get finally a nice run of predictable emotions. That's when I won't experience this flux of anger followed by sadness, followed by confusion, followed by happiness. I just want predictability. I want stability. And plus, we'd like that to externally as well. We'd like to know that our favorite restaurant will always be there. Good luck in New York. You know. But we like the idea that our favorite restaurant won't be kicked out for spiraling rents and that there'll be stability internally and externally. And there is no place you can get to where we become immune to change. In fact, the only solution is to embrace the constant flux and flow of emotions and feelings, changing levels of inspiration, and the times where we go through great doubt and great confusion, to rather than believe that these are going to stick, but to simply embrace them too as part of the experience of being alive. 
when we stop resisting and we open to and we embrace the changing moods and emotions that are flowing through us, then we give up the idea that we need to change or acquire or become someone different. And that's where the great peace comes from. I guess at the heart of tonight's talk, there's this great paradox, which is it's fine to want to achieve and to accomplish and to do things and travel and to, to be creative. In fact, it's important, but at the same time, it's not going to make you lastingly happy. What we can do is, in the Buddha's practice of Uniso Manasikara, he talks about when we are driven, when we are seeking to achieve something, or really want to accomplish something in life, ask ourselves, stop for a moment and ask, when I get there, visualize being there, okay, I've written the great play, I've done the great service, I've, I've, I've developed a new technique to heal back injuries, I don't know what. You know, I've, I've accomplished that thing, what do I want to feel? Right? What do I expect to feel when I get there? When I get the, the money that I'm seeking, the achievement I'm seeking, the, when I've attained what I want to attain, what do I hope to feel? And then, ask yourself, why can't I feel that way right now? What can I do right here, right now, in my life, to get that feeling? Why does that feeling have to be over there? In the future, why have I determined that some feeling or emotion is unavailable to me right now? Now, yeah, if you get that feeling, it'll pass, but it still will be part of your life right now. If you want to have that feeling all the time, good luck. Won't happen. But the idea that it's over there that that happiness and that self-esteem. One of the great uh, things that I read is uh, a couple of studies about the underlying motivations that drive people. And uh, it turns out that people who become really ruthless, competitive people in life often grow up with one caretaker who was unavailable and the only way they could get that caretaker's attention was by constantly proving themselves. So perhaps a young girl or boy in a family with one parent that is a business person who goes away, makes a lot of money, comes home at night, is tired, and the only way the child can get the parent's secure attention is by saying, oh, I got an A at school, or I accomplished this at school. So they're constantly performing uh, by, they're constantly proving themselves. Another form of performance is uh, I, there was a study of children who become uh, performers in life. They very often come from large families where they had to compete with other siblings for attention, and the only way they could get love was by performing for the other siblings and, and, and getting attention that way. Another fascinating study I read was of hoarding. You know what hoarding is, right? When people collect old magazines and stuff and can't get rid of anything. I hoard hoodies. 
I've got like every hoodie I've ever owned. I don't know what's wrong with that. Uh, so, but anyway, hoarding is a an attempt to address a childhood deficit where children who grow up in a family that has a certain amount of money and then suddenly, abruptly, in that family there is a divorce or a death and the fa- or a loss of income and the family's security suddenly plummets. Those children grow up very often to be to hoard because they're trying to protect themselves by amassing from the possibility, again, that everything will be taken away from them. Now, each and every underlying issue there could have been addressed far more skillfully by not trying to attain or accomplish anything. It's interesting that Robin Williams, who said that he felt he constantly had to perform to get love, killed himself, and that so many of the people who hoard never find any security in their lives. The way we find the greatest sense of happiness is by looking around at the people in our lives that can connect, we can connect with and deeply bonding, disclosing our feelings, opening up to the connections that are available by sharing what's going on in our life. Every study shows that human emotions are right now in your life as, they, as it is right now without the need to achieve or do anything different if you simply hold your emotions and then disclose your emotions you will get that happiness that experience of joy that experience of security that so many of the self-improvement regimes have been based on that's the way. And see what's available right here and right now that you can hold, accept, share, own, nurture, care for in yourself.